Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, two of the three major wildfires burning in Northern California are now the second and third largest in state history, according to CAL FIRE. The LNU complex fire in and around wine country and the SCU complex fire burning to the east and south of San Francisco. The Bay Area was largely spared the brunt of last night's thunderstorm activity, which hit mostly in the Central Valley and Sierra Nevada, We get the latest on the wildfires, the strain it's having on firefighters, and new efforts to thin and manage forests. Join us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Northern California was largely spared from last night's weather system that threatened dry lightning and strong winds. Still, the Bay Area's three major lightning-sparked fire complexes have now raged for a week or more. Together, they've burned more than a million acres, destroyed about a thousand structures, and hundreds of thousands of people are under evacuation orders. We want to hear from you. How are you faring after several days of blazes? And joining us first is Scott McLean, spokesman for CAL FIRE. Thanks for joining us, Scott McLean. Thank you for having me. And I should ask you the question, how are firefighters faring after this week of multiple blazes? Well, since you brought up the weather last night, the uh, predicted weather forecast was definitely daunting. Uh, But however, what we received was much, much better news for us. So we continue to get line strengthens, getting those lines further around these fires. The firefighters definitely are tired. But they're still working hard at it. Uh, Both the men and women have just given it their all. Yes, give us a sense of the progress made by firefighters over the weekend and what conditions are like today for you. The conditions, you know, the predicted winds, um, they're probably going to surface a little later. It's looking real calm here at base camp, for an example, and up on the ridgetops I can see it seems to be relatively calm, but there is some breezes. Uh, which definitely, as we all know, promote fires, especially in this area. Uh, They continue to work around the clock on these fires, especially the Hennessy as well as the Wahlberg. We're looking at a total acreage right now as of this morning of 350,000 acres, Mm. uh, 22% containment. The containment continues to climb. Now, keep in mind the Myers fire that's over north of Jenner off the coast is 95% contained at 2,360 acres. So that one's pretty much put to bed. The Wahlberg is definitely uh, a fight still to be had. It is uh, still very active. It is 5% contained. But again, the, the firefighters did an awful lot of work last night and were able to make a lot of headway, even though that 5% figure doesn't sound like it. They have, especially with the type of topography. And then the Hennessy, all those fires that merged and you know, basically wrapped Lake Berryessa. So uh, we still have some activity up in the northwestern corner towards Lower Lake. Uh, you know, we had the Rocky Fire, we had the Jerusalem Fire, we had the Clayton Fire up in that area in the years past. So that area always seems to be pretty active. There's really been no increase in acreage past our lines. What has burned over the course of last night was expected, and that's a 26% contained. Again, burning 293,000 acres, still a lot of work to do, but a lot of black line on it. Uh, Well, glad to hear that. Are you anticipating then that you will not need to issue more evacuation orders or that even you can downgrade some or or even lift any? Uh, We evaluate on a consistent basis throughout the course of each day. So I'm not and do not want the public to be complacent because anything can happen at any time. And by that, I mean uh, we could get an ember across the line and it could start another spot fire and promote the main body of the fire to go in that direction. We all have to work together. We have to keep our heads on a swivel. You know, help us help you, the public. Um, 
by, you know, staying out of those evacuated areas and especially in those warning areas, please be prepared, readyforwildfire.org. I ask that you go to that website and review it. A lot of very helpful information on what to do in case of a wildfire. And to answer your question direct, we are not out of the woods yet. Anything could happen. We are repopping as well as issuing evacuation warnings or orders at the same time. So it's a really in a state of flux. Can you give us a quick update on containment of the SCU fire, the one that's uh, in the East Bay, South Bay, and more? I mean, so many counties are affected by that one, and also the CZU. Mm-hmm. Um, stats this morning on the SCU, Santa Clara Unit, uh, Lightning Complex. We're looking at 347,000-plus acres burned, primarily in grass and brush. It's at 10% uh, containment. And then as I'm going the CZU Lightning Complex, Santa Cruz Monterey, we're looking at 78,000 acres of brush and timber, and that's at 13% containment. Uh, we're looking at 1.2 million-plus acres burned in this period of time. Uh, to put it in perspective, we saw 1.9 million acres burn in 2018 the whole year. 2017 was 1.6 million acres burned, uh, and we just burned 1.2 million acres in just over a week. I mean, that's incredible. And I mean, how long should people expect it to be before the fires are more or less handled? I mean, as you mentioned, we're nowhere near out of the woods yet. It's really hard to say. I mean, we are in drought-like conditions. We remain in drought-like conditions. One winter is not going to make or break it. We need a consistent, uh, you know, weather pattern for a few years in order to get California back on that plateau plateau of moisture content in our vegetation. To put it simply, so there's really no set time. We're going to see this throughout the rest of the year as far as the volatility of our fuels, our vegetation. So we need to have that mindset of being very careful and very cognizant of our surroundings, all of us in this state. And Scott McLean, before I let you go, could you tell us whether or not reinforcements are coming in a timely manner? Again, 1.2 million acres all over the state of California. So resources are out there. They're doing their jobs. I'm feeling comfortable now, but in the same sense, you know, there's always a chance of this weather, these weather patterns that come in, so we need to be paying attention to that. Uh, give you an idea of out-of-state resources. We've received 91 fire engines from out-of-state. They came from the states of Arizona, Idaho, New Mexico, Texas, Oregon, Utah, and Washington. Our resources from the National Guard are, are a big help on the ground and in the air. Our uh, Conservation Corps folks are a big help. We were able to hire almost 850 firefighter ones, or what we call seasonal firefighters, to put them into a crew format, several crew format. That is helping. So all this is helping, but again, we need to have the public's help as well, being that extra careful, being very very cautious out there until and throughout the end of the year. So again, we have to be together on this. Scott McLean, Cal Fire spokesman, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Joining us for the rest of the hour is KQED's Dan Brecky, editor and reporter for KQED News. Hi, Dan Brecky. Hi, Mina Kim. And also with us is Keith Gillis, professor and dean emeritus at the College of Natural Resources at UC Berkeley and chair of the California Board of Forestry and Fire Protection. Keith Gillis, thanks so much for joining us as well. My pleasure to be here. And uh, Keith Gillis, I have to ask you, we did hear a little bit from Scott McLean about uh, how the conditions are different from you know, the fires that we've had, the catastrophic fires, just in the last five years or so, what else do you think we need to understand about how things are different this time from, say, the wine country and Thomas fires? Um, the wine country fires are perhaps a better analogy than the Thomas fire, but what makes this situation so difficult for Cal Fire are the number of simultaneous fire starts, that a dry lightning storm which is something that thankfully uh, we only see on this magnitude on about a 15, 20 year cycle historically. Um, it creates so many ignitions simultaneously that 
just the logistics of finding the resources and dispatching them uh, under ordinary timelines to do your initial attack on these fires uh, becomes difficult to impossible. You just can't get your normal complement of resources to each ignition uh, with the speed you normally do. So that creates a situation where fires can burn longer without response and where there's a potential for them coalescing. Fires that you might have been able to handle easily uh, were you dealing with only one or two ignitions in a county, uh, you've suddenly got 10 to 15 ignitions. Uh, it changes the nature of the response. When you've got an area-wide uh, dry lightning storm like this, it means that it's harder for CAL FIRE or other fire agencies to move resources between uh, CAL FIRE units or counties um, because the next county over is also engaged with a large number of starts. Uh, I think it's yeah. it's remarkable how well mutual aid does work in these situations, but um, it's hard to get a lot of out-of-state resources here for what would normally be an initial attack situation on small fires. But that's, that system, is, as Chief McLean points out, works very well when you're in an extended uh, large fire attack like we're in right now. And we saw that incredible stat that we got some 1,200 lightning strikes that first weekend. And then, Bricky, could you also clarify the situation in terms of inmate firefighters? It sounds like there's been some reporting out there that has suggested that the lack of inmate firefighters was due to COVID-19 infections, but it's not quite that simple. No, there are a couple things going on. I mean, one one thing uh, is definitely um, the appearance of covid in some of the fire camps, the uh, places where the uh, inmate firefighters train. And that has led to uh, some uh, quarantines um, among the, the firefighting uh, force there. Uh, I, I think the state expected about 2,100 inmate firefighters to be uh, available this year. And uh, what the, the force actually available now is about 1,300. Uh, that 800 doesn't sound like a lot when you're talking about, uh, you know, 10 or 12 or 14,000 firefighters statewide. But these crews do the toughest jobs uh, on the fire line. Uh, they actually go in and, and cut fire line by hand. And it's, um, it's the most dangerous, uh, dirty, uh, uh, brutal job you can find in, in firefighting. Um, so, you know, th that 800 has to be backfilled with other firefighters, as Scott McLean suggested. Um, th but the other thing is that there's been a long-term drawdown of the uh, inmate firefighting force. A few years ago, there were about 3,500 firefighters available uh, from uh, inmate sources, and that has gone down to tw about 2,100, and we'll pick that up later. And many of the firefighters were released to protect them from the virus as opposed to them actually being sick with it is one of the points of clarification as I understand it. We'll have more with Dan Brecky, editor and reporter for KQED News, and Keith Gillis, chair of the California Board of Forestry and Fire Protection after the break. And we'll have more with you, our listeners. Join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786 or on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum. You can also email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Tell us how the fires are affecting you directly or indirectly and what questions you have about firefighting resources and also just how to deal with the frequency of these massive fires. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're getting the latest on wildfires raging in Northern California and looking at how the region and you are faring after several days of blazes. First, we had an update from one of our reporters in the field. Kevin Stark is at the LNU Fire Base Camp in Calistoga. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Mina. So what did you hear today, uh, especially since it uh, looks like those thunderstorms didn't materialize as badly as, as, as feared? Yeah, I think fire officials here are kind of breathing a bit of a sigh of relief, um, you know, taking the good news where they can get it. Uh, the the thunderstorms that everybody feared were going to sweep through the Bay Area and start new fires. It, it just there was a, there was a few lightning strikes, but it does not appear that there was any fires that were started last night. So, you know, that's a really good sign. The firefighters around base camp just seem a bit more relaxed today. Last week was just so chaotic as as this fire and other fires just continued to grow so rapidly. 
you know, um, the last I checked, we're still in a red flag warning here, but file, fire officials are saying they think the worst of this kind of weather pattern has passed us. Glad to hear that they're breathing a bit of a sigh of relief. In terms of reinforcements, I mean, what's the status of that? Yeah, so I, this fire um, is still is still pretty understaffed. There are fewer than 2,000 firefighters right now that are battling this blaze. But as I was driving in this morning, I, I think I counted 12 or 13 engines. So, you, you know, they're, they're coming in. California has requested assistance from out of state. Um, I'm told that right now there are 78 fire engines that are from out of state that are here that are fighting fires. You know, this is from places like Arizona and Idaho, Texas other places, and they're expecting that uh, reinforcement to trickle in throughout the week. Um, I, I'm told that there are eight fire engines that are in route from Montana right now. And uh, Kevin, uh, it sounded like from speaking with Scott McLean at the top that there has been some progress made on certain sections of this fire. It is so massive, but I guess any little bit of progress is really good news. What are you hearing along those lines? Absolutely. I mean, you know, this is the second largest fire in, in state history. It's 350,000 burned acres right now. Fortunately, only 3,000 of those acres uh, were, were last night. The fire just did not grow very much. And firefighters were able to gain a percent containment. We're at 22 percent. And they're, you know, they're telling me that they'll, they'll take every percent that they can get. Um, obviously, I think they're going to be working really hard today uh, to, to increase that and to, to try and get their hands, hands around these fires. Well, Kevin Stark, thanks for being there and stay safe, okay? Yeah, thank you. All right, that's Kevin Stark for KQED, a reporter for us. And Dan Brecky, I mean, the LNU fire proportionally has been the most destructive in this, in terms of, of structures and, and even deaths. Can you give us uh, the latest on the death toll? Because I understand it has increased over the weekend. Well, they're saying that uh, the, the total number of uh, deaths on the LNU fire is... Uh, and, and the, the, just to remind people, this is a series of incidents that stretches from uh, Sonoma, the Sonoma County coast north of Jenner, um, all the way to uh, to Vacaville, uh, and uh, and then north into uh, into Lake County, um, where where the biggest fires are. But uh, the, the they're saying that a total of five people have uh, have died in the LNU blaze, and uh, one in the uh, CZU lightning complex, which is the one burning uh, in Santa Cruz and San Mateo County. And then um, there was a, another firefighting uh, related death uh, last week in the Central Valley when a helicopter pilot was killed uh, while uh, you know, fighting a fire there near uh, Colinga. So that's the, that's the total toll we know of uh, right now. Uh, probably there's some caution uh, you know, involved in, in, in stating a, a firm number at this point because the, uh, the areas burned are so vast that, um, you know, it's possible that uh, further fatalities will be discovered. And what have you heard, Dan, about how people who've had to evacuate their homes, had to flee their homes, are faring, especially in light of the pandemic? Well, you know, uh, this is not the, uh, you know, the, the, the normal situation. I mean, and, and I use the word normal um, with some hesitancy, obviously. So when, when people usually have to flee a fire, when they're told very, uh, you know, on very short notice that you have to leave home and, uh, and go someplace, usually there are Red Cross evacuation centers set up. And um, those can take care of basic needs and give people just a, a place to stay. Um, of course, they're usually in indoor settings, uh, what we're, we're calling congregate settings now in, during the pandemic, um, where it would be very, very uh, hard to social distance. And, and so people are very hesitant to use those centers, even when they're set up. And instead, people are resorting to things like uh, pitching tents in the open if they can, if there's space available. That's mm -hmm. That's happened, for instance, in Santa Cruz County, and um, or or finding hotel rooms. Uh, people are finding hotel rooms on their own, or the uh, uh, Red Cross and and other agencies are finding hotel rooms for for people uh, who are in need. And you know, I, I have to say, I do listen to commercial radio for news every once in a while, <laughs> and, and and there are uh, hotel chains that are actually inviting people with special deals if they've been forced out of their homes. But I, I think the, the real 
you know, the real problem for people is, especially if you look to the, uh, to the South, um, you know, there are people who have moved from one place to another as the fires have, have moved and um, they can't find a place to, to settle. Um, there were people, for instance, camped, uh, camped outside, as I mentioned, in tents. And then the authorities were telling people yesterday, you know, we, we need you to, to take down your tents and go someplace else because with thunderstorms coming through, um, it's not safe. And, and on that last note, I just wanted to say that the uh, National Weather Service did cancel the red flag warning for the the Bay Area related to the fires, which is which is good news. Again, we're talking with Dan Brecky, editor and reporter for KQED News, and also with you, our listeners. If some of these experiences sounds like sound like things that you are going through or that you've heard family and friends going through, tell us at eight six six seven three three six seven eight six. Keith Gillis is also with us, professor and dean emeritus at the College of Natural Resources at UC Berkeley and chair of the California Board of Forestry and Fire Protection. And Keith Gillis, uh, Dan Brecky used the word normal, and I just want to ask you just. Is this, in terms of the intensity of the wildfires that we're seeing, a new normal for us? I mean, given the fact that some of these largest, most destructive fires have happened in the last, I mean, in state history have happened in the last decade. What are we looking at here? To some extent, it is a new normal. Um, The list of the top 10 or top 20 uh, largest fires is largely uh, a history of the last 40 years in California. Uh, there are very few fires on that top 10 most uh, destructive or the top 10 largest fires uh, that did not occur since uh, just my joining the Berkeley faculty in the 80s. So it is a modern phenomenon. Climate change is real. Uh, it's not a Chinese hoax. Um, And you can expect uh, extreme events to occur with greater probability, whether that's extreme heat events, uh, extreme wind events, um, uh, extreme uh, drought. And so the sort of factors which have been behind uh, how bad some of these fires got, they are consistent with every uh, really credible prediction of what the California climate has and will become. So it's it's time to look out the window and look at what's going on out there and say, all right, we, we really need to get serious about uh, adaptation and mitigation with respect to climate. Uh, both the state's been a leader in this, but it's time for uh, the nation and the world to really uh, address the fact that these extreme events will increase in probability and we have to adapt to what we're seeing out the window right now. Yes, and one of the things that often comes up, especially after these wildfires, is this question of increased development in woodland areas. I mean, has it made the situation more difficult for firefighters to manage? It can, uh, and I would say it has. Um, So you could say, perhaps we should have green-lined all our cities and uh, dramatically increase the density in urban areas. Uh, On the other hand, I don't think that this is primarily an issue, the losses uh, of people, uh, the population increasing in rural areas. Um, We have learned a great deal in the last couple of decades about how to build safely in areas that have a wildfire risk. That's as simple as what kind of uh, materials you require for siting, what kind of windows you require, the need to have uh, uh, the vents into your attic space, uh, prevent ember intrusion, the the need to think about the vegetation pattern around your house, particularly close by and with recent research, particularly within the first five feet around your house. we can do a lot better there. The fact that many of these fires uh, can move into areas like Santa Rosa show, though, that this is not simply an issue of we're living in areas we shouldn't be living in. Um, there are some analogies to floodplain zoning that you could get into in the sense that topography creates um some wind-driven fires and will continue by the nature of the topography and the prevailing uh, 
meteorological conditions will create some corridors where you're going to get some risky situations. And I would say, though, dealing with that is a matter of making sure you have especially vigorous enforcement of building codes, retrofitting, uh, and redesign of our transportation network. Um, we've seen uh, tragically that even good evacuation planning uh, can be overwhelmed uh, in the moment of evacuation. And most, most of the fatalities associated with wildfires are in the evacuation phase. So this is a transportation issue as much as it's a building issue. Well, let me go to caller Renata in Berkeley. Hi, Renata. Hi, thanks for um, taking my call. I wanted to um, first express appreciation to all of the firefighters working on our behalf. And um, I wanted to share a, a comment from a firefighter friend when I asked him what we could do as citizens to help the crews that are working right now. And he said that the best thing that we can do is to be prepared to evacuate quickly if that should need to happen and to sign up for the alert systems that are available in different counties. So Alameda County has AC alerts that you can sign up for online um, to get the alert to the notification, you know, should you need to evacuate. And so I wanted to share that information. And then I also wanted to ask the panel if there was any other suggestions that they had of things that we could do, small or large, individual or as a community, to support the firefighters right now. Renata, thanks. Keith Gillis? Sorry. Yes, I, I have to say um, that stay attuned to what information is coming out make it easy for public safety officials to get information to you by uh, signing up for opt-in uh, um, communications and as chief mclean pointed out if you just spend some time on the readyforwildfire.org website uh, and look at what you can do in the moment but even more importantly what you should be doing before the moment uh, in terms of having an evacuation plan for your family, uh, knowing where you're going to go and where you're going to reorganize if you're separated, and thinking about hardening your home uh, so that uh, your house stands a chance of surviving a fire. There are many homes within fire perimeters uh, that do not ignite, and, and oftentimes it's it's the result of how those homes have been uh, retrofitted, built, or maintained, and the way the vegetation's maintained. And so uh, you don't want to be thinking about that in the moment. You want to have your vegetation correct. You want to uh, really do as much to make your house resilient to the embers that are going to be landing on it, but also not a house which will present a danger to the firefighters or create additional workload. Uh, let them move from uh, you know, dealing with the structure protection to just dealing with the fire. Uh, same with evacuation. When you just listen to the evacuation uh, warnings, comply with the mandatory evacuations, you're ending up freeing up tremendous amount of firefighting and public safety resources that doesn't have to deal in the initial stages of the fire simply with public safety. And they can get on with managing the fire much quicker. Renata, thanks for that question. And, and Dan Brecky, there are also efforts on the forest management side of things and even some progress if you count this uh, signing of a major agreement with the federal government uh, last week as one where it really talks about new ways to manage California's forests. Can you talk a little bit about what that is prescribing? Yeah, so uh, last week while our fires uh, really got going in, uh, in the Bay Area, um, there was an agreement signed between the federal government and uh, the state government to expand uh, vegetation management uh, programs in California forest lands. Um, that sounds pretty wonky. It's not a new idea. I mean, people have had the idea of thinning forests for a long time. And in fact, the, the Forest Service used to pay individual landowners for, um, for, for thinning forests uh, in among the uh, national forest lands. But what's new is it's a greatly expanded program. Uh, the federal and state governments are uh, the two largest landowners in, in the state, by the way, are, um, 
adopting a program to try to treat a million acres a year of uh, forest lands. And that means uh, removing, you know, thinning uh, forests that have lots and lots of what they call, uh, you know, decadent growth, you know, decades and decades, if not longer, of, of uh, underbrush and, uh, and dead wood that have just been left lying. And to gradually, over the next uh, 15 to 20 years, move to a regime where uh, fire could be used on a uh, controlled scale to, to uh, take over the uh, sort of the, 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 the human management that's necessary now. So, you know, right now it will involve uh, sending in crews with uh, chainsaws and, and chippers and, and heavy equipment in some cases to manage these lands. And, and this has actually been happening on a much smaller scale. For instance, um, you know, CAL FIRE announced uh, a couple of years ago in the wake of the 2018 fires, um, a, a program for 35 different projects across the state, including one right here in the East Bay involving the Orinda Fire Department to, um, to create what they call shaded fuel breaks. There's another one on Highway 17 in, uh, you know, on, the, on the road between uh, San Jose and, and Santa Cruz. And this is to, again, do the same thing of trying to uh, manage you know, what's on the ground with the theory being that if you thin things out, then you minimize the chance that a, a real roaring fire will get started that becomes much hotter and much more damaging and much harder to stop. And uh, Keith Kills, we're coming up on a break, but uh, as we know, there's been this backlog on thinning out dead vegetation. Is this agreement going to really help jumpstart that? I think it can. And the critical thing on this is think about two ways the California map looks when you're looking at an ownership map. One of the areas of the state where it's a checkerboard, a mixture of private and federal land. Uh, if you're trying to work at a landscape level, that checkerboard means you have to move beyond the ownership status. The other would be, think about the land ownership patterns along, say, Highway 70. You go up into a town like Quincy, you have private land and structures at risk in one area surrounded by a federal land matrix. Well, Keith Gillis, we'll have more about this plan because I think it's really interesting and also just generally about forest management. After the break, we're talking about the latest news on California's wildfires with Keith Gillis, Professor and Dean Emeritus at the College of Natural Resources at UC Berkeley and Chair of the California Board of Fires, Forestry and Fire Protection. And of course, we're talking with Dan Brecky, editor and reporter for KQED News, who's been covering these fires. And we're talking with you, our listeners. Give us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with you, our listeners, about the California wildfires, especially those that are burning in the Bay Area, which have now at least two of those become the second and third largest in state history. To join the conversation, 866-733-6786 is the number to call. To join us online, you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We've got Keith Gillis with us and Dan Brecky. And Pam writes, I would like to hear more emphasis on why water conservation and incentives to make it the new normal. Uh, Keith Gillis, connect that for us to this and the fires. One simple uh, linkage is that if you're managing the landscaping around your home to conserve your water use, you are simultaneously managing that vegetation to reduce your fire risk. Um, the same plants, the same rules on spacing, uh, and the same uh, aesthetic principles would apply to the two. So water conservation uh, is intimately linked to how we manage the vegetation around our homes and make them more fire resilient. And Samuel writes, I'm tired of hearing about inmate firefighters simply as an additional resource. Can you please discuss what's actually going on, which is forced labor in life-threatening circumstances? I mean, Dan Brecky, Samuel has a point, right? I mean, you've got inmate firefighters working for almost nothing to fight these fires. And then when they leave, you know, very hard to hire. Yeah, listen, that's an issue that's gotten a lot more attention recently. Um 
you know, we've taken this uh, labor force for granted. And, um, and actually, I, I think it's easy to sort of take to, to uh, assume the opinion that, uh, well, this is a this is a good deal for the inmates because um, they're allowed a greater degree of trust and freedom, and um, you know um, they're they're actually learning a skill, that kind of attitude and uh, or opinion. And the fact is that uh, probably the I mean the two major things you've already pointed out. One is um, that they're paid next to nothing, and number two, there is you know they may be learning a skill, but then it's very very difficult for them to get hired after they're uh, they, they finish their uh, the, their debt to society and are released uh, from prison. And you know the the other thing here is um, you know inmate firefighters get hurt or killed uh, while training or on the line of duty, and um, they simply aren't afforded the same level of um, you know, not protection. I mean, I think they're they're tr treated well by the system while they're, they're they're working. But in terms of you know, they don't have union representation or that kind of thing, where their welfare is really being looked out for. So I think this is you know, Samuel has actually touched on something that's very important, which is if if we want to re really maintain this uh, force. Um, changes have to be made. I think there's going to be more and more outcry for that uh, as we go forward. Keith writes, Santa Cruz food, not bombs, could use more help preparing and sharing meals. We also anticipate another increase in people seeking food and clothing when the Red Cross evacuation shelters close down since the threat of fire has diminished. And uh, so thanks for sharing that, Keith, as we had listeners earlier asking about ways to help. And let me go to caller Tyler in Alameda. Hi, Tyler. Join us. Hi, how are you doing? Great. What's on your mind? Hey, so I, I was actually listening to you guys talking about this, and I feel like what's being talked about now is what was being talked about when President Trump visited Quint or Paradise um, with then-Governor Jerry Brown and Governor-elect Gavin Newsom saying, no, we need better forest management in California. President Trump was explaining that we need a better forest management in California and threatened to withhold federal funding to California about better forest management. And when Donald Trump was saying this, I felt like it was completely ignored. But now that it's being said again, and the name Donald Trump's being removed, it's being revisited. Like, no, we should stay out of the forest a little bit. We should clear the, clear the brush. Sweep the forest is what he said then, but it's, it's being talked about very seriously now. But when Donald Trump talked about it at the campfire in Paradise, it was ignored. And um, I wanted to get to why, why is it being revisited now as a serious option, but when Donald Trump said it, it wasn't. Tyler, thanks. I mean, actually, my understanding, Keith Gillis, is that forest management was always on the minds. And one of the rejoinders to that complaint was, as you were hinting at earlier, the proportion of forest land that's actually federally owned. Can you address Tyler's comments? Right. Um, California forest management is complex. The board that I chair writes the forest practice rules and tries to manage, uh, to some extent, incentivizing good forest management on private lands, we don't have any say over the public lands. Uh, and half of the forest land is federal here. And some of that federal land is managed very well. Uh, but since the 1980s, when the harvest level declined on the federal lands, there has been quite a buildup of fuel. Uh, and uh, you put that on top of decades of fire suppression and you have, in some of the less intensively managed U.S. Forest Service lands, a much higher probability of a fire ignition. And with that much fuel loading, when you do get a fire, um, you know, the consequences aren't, aren't so positive. Uh, the, the fire return interval might be less than 10 years uh, historically in the Sierra Nevada, but you keep it out for 50, then you have a fire. It's not necessarily a good thing to reintroduce fire to the landscape that way. So we need to do more management on public lands. Uh, we need to do more management on some private lands and we need to balance kind of the activities of harvesting and thinning, uh, which are surrogates for fire with where we can reintroduce fire safety. Uh, but the public health aspects mean um, that forestry is just one activity competing for the little band of air quality uh, that we can uh, utilize for a variety of different purposes, like agriculture and transportation in the state, wherever you know we make enough progress on air quality um, 
to allow us to consider doing something which will actually put some particulates or volatile organics or something in the air. Well, Marjorie writes, I'm concerned that these fires eliminate nature's best carbon sink. What is the right balance between ensuring strong and healthy tree canopies and ecosystems and cutting trees and other vegetation for defensible space? I mean, this is definitely something that's been raised when thinning of forests has come up, Keith Gillis. Yes, um, it's it's always a balance. We we like to live in the wildlands, or uh, because of the aesthetics, uh, we like to create artificial wildlands. Uh, um, the Berkeley Hills uh, don't look like they would have <laughs> uh, historically. They don't even look like uh, what was there as kind of a grassy uh, oak woodland when the campus was founded. Um, the truth is, though, you don't need to have uh, paved over or gravel landscapes to dramatically improve your fire safety, especially if you do good transportation planning so that your roads are wide enough that public safety uh, folks like fire trucks can go in at the same time evacuations are proceeding out, uh, that you have your communities planned with multiple points of uh ingress and egress so that you don't result in uh, a cutoff of, you know, sort of your one direction of flow. Um, we, we can manage the situation. It's, it's expensive. Uh, and in some cases you're undoing uh, actions, which in retrospect, weren't such great ones, but we can live with fire in the same way that you live with natural hazards, wherever you live on the planet. Um, this is just our cross to bear the same way hurricanes are uh, down in the southeastern U.S. Uh, earthquake hazards, I wish, uh, you know, in the natural hazards literature, everyone that works in natural hazards reads the same literature because there's so many shared principles in terms of preparedness and management of incidents. Um, and uh, it's great that we're paying some attention to fire right now. Uh, and I wish we had more sustained uh, interest in how we could adapt ourselves here. But the literature on people's reaction to natural hazards shows again and again, people don't do well with low probability events. Their uh, perception of risk is highly colored by their own personal experience or that of the experiences of those close to them. And the half-life of people's perception of what the risk is they're facing uh, is very short. Um, the difference that we have in California right now is that we have moved in fire to big fires essentially every year, uh, not exactly every year, but close to every year. And we're really rethinking our relationship with fire now uh, in a way that we should be with other natural hazards like earthquakes, but our, our experience uh, with major earthquakes has such a wide spacing that it's hard to sustain the level of interest in how well adapted are we to our mm -hmm. natural hazards with with those. Uh, whereas with fire, we're getting attention, it's appropriate attention. And I think the state uh, under both Governor Brown and Governor Newsom is really leading the way and saying, this is not something that you deal with just running around and, you know, applauding heroes in the moment. It's something you have to go after on a sustained basis in your building codes, in your transportation planning, uh, in your vegetation management. And, uh, you know, we're trying to make the situation easier to deal with. The Board of Forestry certified under the California Environmental Quality Act recently uh, a programmatic environmental impact report for vegetation management in the state. So that where uh, you're dealing with a bog standard vegetation treatment around a community, um, and there's a lot of support for this, you don't have to do the same uh, paperwork burden to simply proceed with something which doesn't have endangered species issues, which doesn't have um, too much fire on the landscape problems, which are present in some of the coastal communities where human fire starts means you're burning some communities too rapidly as opposed to the Sierra. So it's manageable, uh, but it's tough. Yes. Well, let me go to Shelly in San Francisco. Hi, Shelly. Hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to make a 
a comment, which is that I'm really glad to hear that um, government forestry is take turning a bit in terms of um, managing the forest and getting trying to get some of the fuel out um, so that when there is a fire, it's not so bad. And I also just wanted to say I grew up in Northern California and come from five, six generations of loggers. And I've lived in San Francisco for 30 years, and I've taken a lot of heat for coming from a logger family. There's a tremendous amount of judgment, particularly in the Bay Area, um, where people have a lot of wood furniture and wood floors and everything else about how bad loggers are. And I come from um, a group of people that really do care about the forest and and really do believe in some selecting logging um, to take out some of that fuel that burns fire so hard. So I just wanted to put out there and say there's some uh, small loggers out there. Give them a break. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Shelly, I really appreciate you sharing that perspective. And I mean, Dan Brecky, yes, I mean, this has definitely been an issue. Are environmental groups saying that they're generally supportive of thinning now as well? They are. I mean, I think there's been a, a, a turn toward, um, you know, I mean, looking at the results of, uh, well, you know, let's take a step back. I mean, I, I don't think, uh, envir- you know, major environmental groups like uh, the Sierra Club, for instance, uh, have been in favor of the 100% fire suppression model that's been in place. I mean, I, I, there's been criticism of that for decades, but I think there has been a turn toward uh, realizing that, um, you know, th- there's been a, a certain amount of neglect and, and part of it is, you know, uh, maybe driven less by, um, you know, cultural attitudes about logging than uh, not prioritizing, uh, you know, how we address forest issues. And, and when I say, you know, uh, prioritizing, I mean, in terms of spending money on, on improving things um, or, or managing things. So, I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, I take Shelley's point um, and, and maybe the appropriate answer there is to, um, you know, hate the logging and, and, and love the logger or something like that. But um, I think that, um, yeah, there, there has been a, a sort of a, a public attitude shift about this. Well, let me go to Brian in San Francisco. Hi, Brian. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I definitely believe climate change is real and that um, the fires are worse because of climate change. But I also think um, we haven't been tending the land as it was intended for at least decades or centuries because um, indigenous Native Americans haven't been able to tend it um, as they have. Can we talk about um, the contributions of indigenous culture in cultivating this land and how we're moving forward to incorporate that into land management? Um, I could take the answer off the line. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate that. I mean, has there been some engagement with uh, Indigenous people, Keith Gillis, in terms of land stewardship? Not enough. Um, There is increasing engagement because, as the caller points out, uh, fire was um, a very important part of the Native American toolkit for managing their relationship with the environment. And the landscape that we think of as natural, the landscape that was reported in the early, you know, European journals about California was in fact an intensively and well-managed landscape uh, reflecting uh, Native American cultural practices. And so there are some members of the Native American community in California that are speaking quite eloquently about this, that are being brought into policy discussions. Um, in the last term I served on the Federal uh, uh, Forestry Research Advisory Council to the USDA, uh, they had even recognized this at that level and were starting to bring Native American voices onto that research advisory committee. Um, it's something where we need to mainstream uh, the relationships and that we have something to learn that goes well beyond the boundaries of the land 
which are directly under Native American management. Well, this listener tweets, I'm lucky to not live close enough to be evacuated, but smoke has closed our three-year-old's nursery, which was outside due to COVID concerns. This means we're back to not having childcare and needing one parent to step in. Cabin fever is definitely setting in. Again, a ripple effect of these fires. This listener tweets, I'm honestly really struggling. Fire is crawling towards my house. I feel like these two comments really encapsulate what so many of us are feeling right now with this with these wildfires on top of what we've been going through related to the pandemic the economic issues and so on and i guess i just have to ask you keith gillis in the last minute that we have i mean we're talking about the state having this new commitment towards vegetation management and maybe some resources through the federal government to help do that more do you think we can sustain this given everything that's going on right now over the longer time period, yes. In the short time, people in the short timeline, um, the state's going to have to do a lot of delicate balancing here. That uh, someone who's trained in forestry and economics um, and did a lot of work in rural development, um, the fact is the pandemic has wiped out uh, a tremendous number of households. Uh, entire wealth accumulation. And so the number of households that are on the edge, not just emotionally, but financially, says that whatever our priorities were, not just for forestry, but for all public expenditures uh, before the pandemic will need to be reevaluated in light of what American families are going through right now. And Dan Brecky, last word to you in terms of what we should be watching for today. Well, you know, the, the weather, uh, the, the heat wave inland has not stopped. Um, there are very tough conditions for firefighters, but um, the number of firefighters on the line has about doubled from last Thursday. And as Scott McLean said earlier in the hour, um, there is progress being made. Um, these fires are going to burn for weeks. Uh, we're we're going to see signs of uh, smoke and uh, other effects for yes. some time to come. Take steps now. Dan Brecky with KQED News. Keith Gillis with the Natural Resource with Nat College of Natural Resources at UC Berkeley and the California Board of Forestry and Fire Protection. Ariana Prail and, and Dan Zoll produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.